0: The gift of teaching. That's my subject for today. Uh, If you haven't found out by now, I I am a teacher. We saw from Ephesians 4 that Christ gave gifts to the church when he ascended on high. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers, or pastors-teachers, depending on how you diagram that out. And then the purpose is stated in Ephesians 4.12, for the first, perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. An immature church is ineffective in fulfilling the mission that Christ gave to it, to take the gospel to every creature, every person, and then teach those people how to live for Jesus, to live a life that would be glorifying to God. So in addition to the shepherding responsibilities of protecting the flock, prayer, and having oversight over the church, uh, a pastor shepherd's main duty is to teach the word of God to the flock. Every pastor, I said, must be a teacher, but not every teacher is a pastor. But the emphasis on teaching in the New Testament is on the public instruction of God's word in Ephesians 3, 1 says, this is a true saying, if a man desires the office of a, a bishop or overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, and what? Able to teach, have the ability to teach. So the gift of teaching is mentioned also in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, where Paul Says God set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, and then he says, thirdly, teachers. Teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues, and etc., etc. But we have been looking at the gifts in Romans chapter 6. I won't get into all the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. If you're interested in those, I think all my sermons on 1 Corinthians are online you could turn there but Romans 12:6 having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us whether prophecy let us prophecy according to the proportion or the measure of faith or ministry let us wait on our ministry we spoke about prophecy we spoke about ministering or serving now the third is listed here or he that teaches on teaching Acts chapter 2, verse 41, I think you all know this very well. After the, you know, the phenomenal events there in Pentecost that led to the sermon that was preached there, it says, Then they that gladly received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and the same day was added to the church 3,000 souls. Notice what it says. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's didache, teaching. One of the earliest Christian documents that we have is called the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayer. So I draw your attention to the word steadfastly. They continue steadfastly. That word means a single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. What the apostles taught, they submitted to, and wanted to put that into practice, So that's what steadfast means. If you're steadfast in the faith, you know what you've been taught, and you want to submit to that and put it into practice. Steve Lawson says, The Holy Spirit worked powerfully in this first church by leading the apostles to be prolific in their teaching ministry. Sound doctrine enriched every aspect of the church's life. Everything flowed from the pure fountain of biblical truth. And that's the way it ought to be, right? God didn't leave things up to our imagination or whatever we would think. The source for everything that we do, including our worship, is to be taken from the pure fountain of biblical truth. And then he says this, as The chief activity of the apostles, their teaching was primary for four reasons. And I'm going to attempt to follow these somewhat this morning. First, it was modeled in Jesus' ministry. The teachings of the apostles was modeled in Jesus' ministry. Secondly, it was commanded in the Great Commission. Third, it was practiced in the early church. And then lastly, it was reinforced in, in the, uh, the epistles, the, particularly the pastoral epistles. Well, we know, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, that Jesus was a teacher he was a teacher. John 3, one says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So he addressed them first as rabbi, which, which means master, but also means in certain passages teacher. It could be translated that. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. And remember, he says, no man could do the kinds of things that you did, except God were with him. So he knew he was God sent. A great part of Jesus' teaching ministry was called the Great Galilean Ministry in the the region of Galilee. And it says in Matthew 9.35, he went about all the cities and villages. And remember, the the miracles were the magna. They drew people to Jesus, and he used that opportunity to teach them. But it says he went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. The most common way that people greeted Jesus was with the designation teacher. Matthew or Mark 10.35, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him saying, master or teacher, we would that you should do for us whatever we shall desire. And eh, not too much selfishness there, right? <laughs> so the word that comes over into English, didactic, it comes from the Greek word didasco. Didasco, first person singular, I teach. So it means to teach. Now teaching is not just giving out information. People, anyone can stand up here and read a bunch of facts and give out information. The person with the gift of teaching has the ability to have the people comprehend and apply the truth that they are taught. And material is is organized or presented in a way that's profitable to the hearer. If it's disorganized, and you've probably heard teachers who have, you know, really not the gift of teaching, and they present information, and it 's all over the board and and you know you, you get a little bit here, you get a little bit there, but there just really isn't any cohesion to it jesus Jesus spoke of himself, he identified himself as a teacher, and nobody was more adept at people at helping people to grasp his message and yet, in spite of the fact that he was such a competent teacher, there were people. Who did not grasp his message. In John 13, 12, it says, After Jesus washed their feet of the disciples and and had taken his garments and was set down, he said to them, his disciples, Know you what I have done to you? Do you know the object lesson that I have just given you? And Jesus was very good at doing that. He said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say correctly, You are right. For so am I. I am a teacher. I am Lord. And when you think about the life of Christ, Jesus used every opportunity that was presented to him to teach his disciples and the crowds that followed him. He taught in a variety of settings. He taught by the seashore. He taught from a boat. He taught in private homes. He taught on on a mountainside where he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. He taught in other public gatherings. He spoke and talked to his disciples as they walked along the roads of Galilee and then down into Judea. And the New Testament lists at least 10 occasions in which Jesus taught in synagogues. Why? Because that's where the people came to be taught, to be instructed. He also taught on the temple grounds, some fiery sermons. And Jesus was a great storyteller. The Jews love stories. Haggadah is is storytelling. The Haggadah, the Passover, is the story of what? The Exodus from Egypt. And Jesus was very adept at telling stories. And he used parables in his teaching, we know. I mean, you think of the parable of the vineyard, right? The laborers in the vineyard. Where this 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 owner of the vineyard hires people to work in his vineyards because the crops were you know all ready to be picked, and um, he's agreed to pay him a, a denarius. And then what happens? You know, there's not enough work getting done, so there's people day laborers. That's they were the lowest of the low. The day laborers in that day were just looking for any kind of work. They were hanging out, and he said, "Come work in my vineyard." He hired them, and then even in the latter part of the day, he wasn't enough. More work needed to get done, so he hired more. And at the end of the day, he, came to, he had to pay the people, right? Now, you worked all day in the heat of the sun, and you, you were going to get your wages, right? And what did he pay you? He paid you. What did he agree to? One denarius. And then the people who came midday, what did he pay them? The same. And then the people who came at the end of the day, what did he do? He paid them what? The same. And that first group now was calling their union representative. (laughs) I mean, this is just... And listen, I I have news for you. You and I would be right in that same boat. We would be thinking, this is not fair. What was Jesus teaching them? The grace of God. The grace of God. And he was wonderful at using stories. He also used the very typical rabbinical method which was asking questions. Asking questions. That's how you get people to learn. Ask questions, especially in private, smaller settings. But what did he teach them? He taught them the truth from God. His message came from God. In John twelve forty eight, he said, "...he that rejects me and does not receive my words has one who judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day." For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father who sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. So his message came from his union with the Father. Now, you need to understand that Jesus didn't tune into the Father in such a way that the Father told him what to say at every moment. Jesus knew the word of God in depth. And he didn't know it in his incarnation because he wrote the book. In his incarnation, taking upon himself full humanity, he learned just like other children learned. That's amazing, young people. Jesus learned the same way you're learning. It says in Luke 2.40, And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. And the indication there is that he was growing with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. In Luke 4.16, and this, this kind of hints to us of a little bit about Jesus' life because he's, he's about 30 years old now. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And notice what it says. As was his what? Custom. This is what he did since he was little. He went to the synagogue. He stood up to read. Now, what we do know from many sources about Jewish education in that day, it went like this. Now, you young people, any six-year-olds here? Anybody here six years old? They're all outside, right? (laughs) Well, at six, boys and girls in Jesus' day attended the synagogue school, and the synagogue school for the six-year-olds to ten was called Beit Sefer, and it meant House of the Book. and And the typical synagogue lesson would begin with the the elder of the community, who would come into the to the room, and he would put some honey on the slate where the children would be gathered. And then he would tell them to take their tongue and to lick, lick the honey off the slate. And then he would say to them, Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So those six years old in Beth Sefer, the house of the book, were required to memorize the first five books of the Bible, So they would memorize Exodus, Leviticus, Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By the time they were 10 years old, they would master those books. Then they would go on to what was called Beit Talmud, which was called the house of the learning. From 10 to 13, they would be in Beit Talmud. And guess what they would do in there? They would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. They would put it into memory. Then the cream of the crop, so to speak, they would go to Bet Midrash, the house of learning. This was only for the advanced students. And they would seek to follow a rabbi. And he would question them in depth, in depth about the Old Testament law and the prophets and all of these things. And then he would pick certain ones to be his tamid, his disciples, and they would follow him. And they would literally, as the saying saying goes, they would walk in the dust of the rabbi. They would follow their rabbi. So Jesus was kind of unusual. Did he have a rabbi? But he knew the scripture from memory. John 14, 15, 14 says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants. For the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends. And he says this, For all things that I have heard or learned of my Father, I have made known unto you. So you can just picture the disciples walking behind Jesus in the dust of the rabbi, and he's using every opportunity to teach them. Consider the lilies of the field, so forth and so on. And he would ask them questions. He would constantly engage them. And then he would use the ordinary things of life to present spiritual truths to them. Well, knowing the scripture and teaching it to others takes hard work. Second Timothy 2.15, I know you know this verse, right? Study, right? And that word means strive earnestly to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, cutting it accurately, understanding it contextually. 1st Thessalonians 4:11 study study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commend you. You know what that word to to be quiet mean that phrase means it means lead a quiet life. Lead a quiet life and it was it was said of those who were who were not running here and there but they were staying at home and they were minding their own business. It's good, good advice. Study to be quiet. Do your own business. Mind your own business. Don't be a busy body meddling in other people's affairs. Jesus taught with authority. It says in Matthew 7, 28, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. That would be the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. The people were astonished at his doctrine, right? I mean, nobody ever spoke like that. Nobody ever taught like that. Nobody ever engaged people like Jesus did. It says, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were the Torah teachers. The Greek word for authority is exousia, which means means power and also means the right of privilege. He taught as someone who had authority and the right of privilege to teach because God the Father had sent him. Ray Vanderlaan says, Jesus seems to be a type of rabbi believed to have what was called shmikah. S-M-I-K-H-A-H. Shmikah, or authority to make new interpretations. Most of the teachers were Torah teachers, teachers of the law, who could only teach accepted interpretations those things that were accepted by the rabbis. But those with shmika, those with authority, could make new interpretations and pass legal judgments. Jesus would say, the law says this, but I say unto you, he had shmika, he had authority. And the teaching of the rabbis was called the yoke of the rabbi. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon upon you and learn of me, And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was his interpretation of the law. So Jesus was saying, you have these these Pharisees and these scribes, these Torah teachers, who are putting enormous burdens on you that you cannot bear. Get rid of that. Take my yoke upon you. Take my interpretation upon you for my interpretation of the law is easy and my yoke is light and you'll find rest for your souls. They were overburdened with all of these walls that they had built around the law to try to keep or to guard the law. Well, Jesus had authority, but there were many people who questioned his authority, right? Some directly said that. Where do you get your authority from? Right? Where did he get his authority from? From the Father. I can remember one time, a couple of Mormons came came to my house a long time ago and, and uh, they, you know, they had their little name cards on and then they, they said that they had some letter from Salt Lake and that's what get granted them authority because I asked them that question, where did you get your authority? Well, you got it from Salt Lake, right? I got mine from, from the Lord, <laughs> right, right from his word. Homer Kent says, the Christian faith was not merely an enlistment program but a meaningful commitment. It was to be characterized by the clear teaching of God's truth which truly transforms lives. And it's sufficient for every need. And why is it sufficient for every need? Because it is the word of God, right? He's given to us everything that was necessary for a life of faith and godliness. Nothing lacking. Now, we know that not every Christian has the spiritual gift of teaching. God gave it to the church. It's very important, but not every Christian has it. Think about Jesus again. Back to his teaching. He did some unusual things. Sometimes he, he spoke in very fiery language, right? I mean, he had some very sharp, harsh things to say. Think of the woes that he pronounced to the Pharisees and the scribes. Nothing, something else that was unusual was that, and we, we mentioned this in Romans, is that sometimes Jesus concealed truth. He concealed truth from those people who had hardened their hearts to it and we call that judicial hardening mark 10 mark 410 to 12 when he was alone those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable the meaning of the parable he said to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of god you're seekers you want to know but to those who are outside those those who will not hear what i have to say all things are spoken in parables, so that seeing they may not see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn, and their sins be forgiven them. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because we always taught about the forgiveness of sin. Well, they had so hardened themselves to it that Jesus left them in a state of rebellion against Him. That's the way it was going to be with them. They had already, did, and of course, He He knew all men. The Bible says. But this is what they had determined. They were determined to resist the teachings of Christ and the authority which he had. And how many people do you know exactly like that today? And that's why we were told in Scripture sometimes, you know, shake the dust off your feet, don't cast your pearl before a swine. If people are just, you know, treating the word of God with contempt, move on. But at other times, Jesus went out of the way to clearly expound the truth, to break it down. In great detail, Luke 24:27. this is with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Cleophas was one of them, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Well, how did he know all those? Because he learned them from the time that he was a little boy. He memorized them. He knew the Word of God inside and outside. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you like to be on, on that Bible study? Huh? Expounded is the word theomenuo from hermenuo, hermeneutics. And it's intensified by the word through. And it means to interpret fully, to give the meaning. That's what Jesus was doing there. He was interpreting the scriptures. He was giving the meaning, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, the things concerning himself. So what is hermeneutics? It's the method of discovering the meaning of a text of scripture. If you go to school, that's what they'll, they'll teach you in Bible schools and seminars. And where does it come from? Hermeneutics comes from uh, Hermes. Hermes, H-E-R-M-E-S, was the god of Greek mythology who was the speaker for the gods. So he was conveyed the one who conveyed messages between the divine realms, the underworld, and the world of mortals. Now that's mythologies, Hermes. But he was the speaker for the gods. So hermeneutics is breaking down the word of God and telling people what God has said, the message from God's word. When we give the accurate meaning of Scripture, we are conveying a message from the one true God to other human beings. Now, here's a very important, very important principle of biblical interpretation. There is only one correct meaning of a text. It's your job, my job, to figure out what it is. What's that correct meaning? And when you're studying Scripture, you just... Never interpret a Bible verse. Always interpret the immediate context, the greater context. Those are some of the principles of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science and the art of biblical interpretation. That's what it's called. It is a science because there are principles and rules that guide it. It is an art because the rules and principles must be skillfully applied. To the goal of what? Having the people understand, grasp something. Hopefully, you learned something this morning that you didn't know before you came here this morning. That you know there is some kind of a takeaway. I'm checking my time. Out. Nobody's checking their watch, right? So, I guess I'm good. Let's go. Let's go back to Nehemiah. I deliberately assigned Steve that text. I wanted to see him struggle with those names. <laughs> Don't laugh, because there are more difficult ones than that, that some of you will be reading. So the people gathered in Nehemiah 8-1, as 1 as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. I mean, just, just picture this scene now. Picture it in your mind. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all could, who, who could hear with understanding. You know what that means? Children, right? Now, the, the infants and those who could not comprehend it, didn't have, didn't, couldn't speak, they, they were dismissed. But on the first day of the seventh month, then he read it from them in the open square that was in the front of the water gate from morning until midday. I not see anybody complaining. Before the men and women and those who could understand, and all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, now, now gad he's, he's, he's just reading. He's just reading at this point. So Ezra described stood on a platform of wood, which we had, they had made for that purpose. That's a pulpit of wood. And beside him on his right hand stood six men. And then on his left hand, eight men. And I'm not going to read you any names. And verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And why, did, why were the pulpits at the time of the Reformation elevated, and maybe even sooner than, why were the pulpits elevated? Not to elevate the men, but to elevate the word of God. To, to, to make the authority of the word of God prominent. That's why they had the elevated pulpits back then. So he opened the book in the sight of all the people for was standing above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And why do we stand up for the reading of scripture? Just to honor the word of God. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. They were Baptists while lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then you have the list of uh, 14 people there. It says in verse 7, who helped the people to understand the law. They broke it down. And, and the people stood in their place. Well, here's, here's the point. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Listen, every teacher of God's word, every pastor, every preacher's responsibility is to do exactly that. We have a book. It's God's word. And the teacher's responsibility is to give the sense, the meaning of that text, and to help them to understand it. Because if they don't understand it, they will not be able to put it into practice. They will not be able to apply it. So that's why, you know, Christians who grow are Christians who have been taught. Or maybe they're in a church where the pastor really doesn't do a whole lot of great teaching. A lot of churches, sometimes pastors, you know, they're great at evangelists. They're they're gifts of evangelism and, you know, good at giving invitations and getting people to respond to Christ. But very little teaching, very little growth goes on in some of those churches. And people don't grow. So they have to find places where they can get the teaching themselves. Well, Jesus was a teacher. There was none better. And he called his disciples to be teachers. And the authority that his disciples had came directly from him. And in that sense, I want you to think that every Christian has the authority from Jesus to teach people the truth of his word. You may not be a pastor, a shepherd, a Sunday school teacher, or whatever. You may not have the gift of teaching per se, but you can teach people who don't know anything about God what God's word says concerning Himself, concerning Jesus Christ, concerning the plan of salvation. John twenty twenty one, Jesus says to His disciples, "Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, so send I you." That's a commission. And then in Matthew twenty eight eighteen, Jesus came and spoken to them, saying, "All power." He given it to me in heaven and earth. That's all authority. Go, you, therefore, and teach. It means make disciples, make learners of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, didasco, explaining to them, breaking down the truth of my word to them, and teaching them to observe all things, that's the application. Whatever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And when Jesus says teaching them, teaching them, that's a present participle in the Greek, and it implies that the Christian instruction is to be a continue, continuous process. We are all in works in, process, in progress, right? So the learning never stops. You should be learning God's word. You should be studying God's word. And don't get too busy with so many other things that that part of your life is completely neglected because you won't be able to put into practice things that you haven't learned. Howard Hendricks says, God didn't give us the Bible to make us smart sinners. God gave us the Bible to increase our level of obedience. Teaching was practiced in the early church. The gift of teaching, again, is a God-given ability to properly interpret and clearly explain God's word so that others can understand it and apply it. And just let me say this, that the person who has a God-given ability to teach loves to study. When I was in school, I didn't like studying. Who did? Right? You just wanted to get over with that. I've been studying all my life since then. I don't know how many hours. I tried to calculate how many hours based on 32 years of ministry, multiple messages a week for many years. How many hours of study I've put in? I don't know. 60,000? I don't know. 70,000? I, I, God, give me, to, it's not been a burden. You say, I could never do that because God didn't give you the gift of teaching. And if God gives you the gift of teaching, God will give to you a desire to study because you can't teach if you don't learn, if you don't study. So, and that's not not anything owing to me. It's It's just what God has done for those whom he has called to teach. Teaching took up the abundance of the apostles' time. The Bible says they, you know, they went everywhere preaching the word. Preaching is exhortation. So you could teach and explain, and then you it's sometimes combined together, you preach, you exhort because because you want people to respond. So preachers preach for a verdict. Okay, what do I do with this now? And you know, even with your children you can do that. Teach for a verdict. What is it you want them to do? Teach for a verdict. Get them to make a commitment so that it'll change their life. Book of Acts references the teachings of the apostles in many passages. I've listed them here in in your notes. 242. 3, 11 through 26, 4, 1 and 2, 8 through 12, 19 and 20, 31, 33, 5, 20, 21, 29, 32, 42, 6, 2, 4, 7, 11, 13, 14, 7, 1 through, that's all throughout the book of Acts. Guess who had the gift of teaching beside Jesus? Luke. You ever, you ever read what Luke has written? You ever you ever notice the attention to detail that, that, that Luke gives? He cites facts. He cites people. He cites places. He just, he just breaks it all out, breaks it all down. He's very precise. When Luke speaks about a needle, he was a physician. He uses the term for a surgical needle. He's, he's very, very descriptive. He was a master historian. He was a great Bible teacher, great model for teacher. So it was essential to the survival of the church. If people are not spiritually fed, they will remain babes. They won't be able to eat the the, the Josh said meat of the word, right? The ladies' salad suppers, right? No meat, right? But you want you want the meat of God's word, or you won't grow. And if the people in the church aren't taught, the church won't grow. And then in addition to that lack of growth is the reality of the very present danger of false teachers. If you are not familiar with the genuine, you will fall for the counterfeit. You will accept the substitute. So the best way... To immunize yourself against false teaching is to know the true teaching of God's word. And what do false teachers do? They, they're not our friends. They want to undermine the faith. Jude says this, verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was necessary for me to write to you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, earnestly fight, wrestle for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. For there were certain men, and notice what he says in Jude 3, they came in through the back door. Jose's watching the back door. Watch. These men are creeping in. That's what he says. They creep in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. They come in unaware. They have an evil purpose to destroy the truth that was once delivered. Boy, just think of all the cults. This is exactly what they do. First Timothy 4: when the spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, doctrines of devils. 1 Timothy 4:13, Paul told Timothy, "Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Teaching. teaching careful instruction. And then he says in verse 16, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, the teaching. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will both save yourself and those who hear you. You'll save yourself from error. You'll save the people who hear you from error. Because these false teachers will come in unaware and they'll undermine the faith. In First Timothy 6.20 he says, He says, O Timothy, keep... Keep. That means guard, protect. Guard, protect that which is committed to your trust. God gave the Word of God to Paul. Paul says, or God gave the Word of God to, to every believer, but Paul is telling Timothy now, you have this sacred deposit of truth, the trust. Stand guard over it. Protect it carefully. That which has been committed to you. And then he says, avoid profane and vain babblings and the oppositions of science falsely so-called. Errors that people are going to try to propagate. So whenever false teaching rears its head in a church, it has to be soundly refuted. Titus nine, speaking of the elders, hold firmly the faithful word which is in accord with the teaching. So that you will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. You have to be equipped to be able to do that. It's the book of Titus, chapter one, verse nine. And then it also in chapter two, verse one. But as for you, he's telling him, speak the things that become. Sound teaching. Sound doctrine. Well, false teachers, they want to undermine the faith. It has to be refuted. And you know, the Bible says that false teachers are guilty also of, some of them, of damnable heresies. That means heresies that will bring judgment. Second Peter 2, 1, there were false teachers also among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. So, so this is not a surprise they're creeping in, unaware. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And it says he will, they will privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So the teachings that they propagated, the false teachings that they propagated, led to divisions within the church. They led to the formation of sects within the church that was severing the body, causing a separation in the body. Heresy always breaks down the unity of a church if it's not addressed. It will destroy the unity of a church. Paul used the term heresy, Greek term heresies, in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen to refer to separatist groups who claim status within the Christian community. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, so I'm of Cephas, and so forth. I'm of Christ. But in reality, they became heretical sects. The church was dividing along party lines and was destroying the unity of the church. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are schisms among you, and I partly believe it, for there must also be heresies. That word literally, the Greek word heresies, we get the word heretic, it really means, it means choice. People make choices to propagate certain things that are not true and divisive. Schisms. He says, there are schisms among you. That means to tear or rend, to break apart like you would tear a garment, like you would rip a piece of cloth. That's what was happening in the church. Now, let me give you an example of a heretic, all right? A heresy. I have to go back. Oh, I can give you present day ones. But one that stands out because I had to confront this in this church with people who were following this guy. Harold Camping. Family Radio. He taught that May 21st, 2011 would be exactly 7,000 years after the flood of Noah. And the judgment on that day, May 21st, 2011, he had big billboards all over America, people, caravans, following, preaching, would include an earthquake at 6 o'clock, and then that would start seven months of suffering, culminating in the demise of the whole planet on October 21st, 2011. We're still here. When May 21, 2011 came and went, without the cast catastrophes, Camping predicted family radio, issued an apology. Camping then modified his teachings to say that the judgment did indeed fall on May 21st, but it was invisible. <laughs> he said it was spiritual in nature. But he said the world would still be destroyed on October 21st 2011. He was sticking to his guns. Well, sometimes heretics suffer judgment, swift judgment. Harold Camping suffered a stroke in June 2011 and was incapacitated. End of his ministry, goes into a nursing home. The October 21st date passed without a fulfillment of his destruction of the whole planet. And he then subsequently issued a statement that his end-of-the-world prediction had been incorrect, no kidding, and a sinful statement, and that he had learned the very painful lesson that all of creation is in God's hands, in God's hands, and he' will, he will end time in his time, not ours. So don't, don't pay a text. I'm just telling you, you know, we'd we're, we're always be ready for the Lord's return, right? They're always be ready to go and be with the Lord. But don't get overzealous and caught up in rapture fever and all of these things. You know, pay attention to the things you know to be true. Put them into practice and make the use of, of, your, of every opportunity. But just, it's good to, to, to know what's, you know, what we can know from scripture, but don't get, don't get caught up. Camping, camping was guilty of being a false prophet. You made a date. Didn't happen. He was guilty of false teaching. Oh, I could go right. I could preach the rest of this couple hours on that stuff. He was also a heretic because his beliefs sowed division in churches everywhere. He said the church age had ended. He was telling people what he was telling them. Remember, get out of the churches. They, 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 they used to have a, a Sunday night segment, you know, where different guest preachers could preach and they would play it on family radio. And, and, and I, I was on that several times, you know, during those night echoes or whatever they were. And then after he, he believed the church was all corrupt, everybody couldn't preach no more. Cancel there anything to do with the local church. But let me just say this then. It does not have to be a division over doctrinal belief to be heretical. It does not have to be over doctrinal. It could be the latest conspiracy theory that can creep into a church and divide a church. It could be the latest diet fad. It could be the latest political hot buttons. Politics could become extremely divisive. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Keep the main things, the main things, brother Don." And that there would be no divisions or schisms among you, but that you'd be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. We may not think exactly alike on everything, but even if we differ, we can still be united, right? We could still be united on the main things and not get sidetracked by everything else. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by those who are the house of coal, that there are contentions... Division, schisms, contention, strife. And you notice what he says. Now, now this I say, that everyone says, I'm of Paul. Someone's saying, I'm of Paulus. Someone's saying, I'm of Cephas. Some of you are even of the Christ party. And he says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Christ? Now, if you want to know how serious what Paul was saying about divisions within a church, he is saying in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 that it is like cutting Christ to pieces. That's, that's how serious it is. You're dividing the body of Christ. When the church divides, the body of Christ composes of believers is divided it's parceled out. And it's essential unity is lost. Second Thessalonians 3, 4 says, If any man does not obey our word by this epistle, note that man, have no company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So you try to gain them back. You try to gain them back. You know, there were some in the church of Thessalonica who refused to listen to the apostles. As they taught the truth of God's word, that's what he's saying here. If any man obey not this word, and the turning away from biblically ordained authority was an act of disobedience, that's what Paul is saying there. I mentioned before we had people who I tried to reason with when they were following Harold Camping. I, I many times I sat down with some of these people and I said, "This is false." This is false teaching. This man is a false prophet. I could not gain them. So they rejected my, uh, my position as a pastor teacher to follow some radio guy. Right? They wouldn't heed my warnings. And that's what Paul was telling the Thessalonians. I've had other people who left this church years ago who followed other false teachers. And when, when they when people tried to reason with them that you're gone astray, they wouldn't heed them. They refused to to listen to correction. And we know then the reality that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Sound teaching Ephesians four eleven through fourteen is the purpose for the edifying of the body, the building up of the body of Christ, so that people would not be misled by people with 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 you know who come in and and uh, use sleight of hand like magicians' tricks to get people to believe things. Boy, some of those magicians are really good, aren't they? I mean, some of those hand sleight of hand guys are really impressive. I mean, they've taken some of them. I, I I'd read somewhere, there's one that was on, what was that show about, you know, America's Got Talent, and they had this one magician on there, and and they, they zoomed in on cameras, you know, fixed and everything on it, and they stood and still could not pick up the sleight of hand, how he did it. You know, they're, they're very good. I mean, if you've ever been, I, I remember one time, one time it was in Hawaii, we had a guy come out our table, and he did the trick right in front of us at our table, and I could not see it. I could not see how he did it. And that's what false teachers do. Slide a hand. A little here, a little there. So quickly, sound teaching is essential to our sanctification, Paul says. 128, Colossians, speaking of Jesus, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect. That means lacking nothing necessary to completeness or maturity. Now, we're not going to be completely perfect or mature until we're with Jesus, right? Total sanctification then. But God wants us to be what? Mature. Mature. Ezra 7, 9. Upon the first day of the first month, began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of God, which was upon him. For Ezra has prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach it in Israel statutes and judgments. So there you have a threefold requirement for teachers. The three-fold requirement for teachers. Next one. the Slide. Three-fold requirement for teachers. Number one. Teachers. Prepare your heart for teaching. Look, if you're teaching your children at home, especially if you're teaching them God's word, prepare your heart for teaching. That's what Ezra did. Number two. Practice it. Whatever they see in you, they'll do. They'll follow. Do you know why the number one reason why, why a lot of children, Christians, raised in Christian homes, turn away from Christianity? Because it didn't work for mom and dad. Hypocrisy. Now, there are some who go straight just because they have that bent toward the nature. So I'm not indicting everybody. Practice it, do it. That means surrender of the will. Surrender. Third, propagate the teaching. He he taught in all of Israel. That's what Ezra did. He taught statutes and judgments. And that's God's goal. Right? That's discipleship. Propagate means to transmit from one generation to another. For Christian families, it begins with the teaching of their children in their home. We're secondary to the instruction they should be receiving at home to church. Sunday school, junior church. It's not my responsibility, parents, to teach your children. It's your responsibility to teach your children. And then hopefully when they come here, the things you've taught them, the Sunday school lessons and all of those things that you've taught them, they'll hear it again from somebody else. And that's how they grow. Sound teaching is essential for church growth. 2 Timothy 2 1 and 2. Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, I've been teaching some of you men here for many years. You're younger than me. Well, you take it, you pass it on, you teach it to others. So that you have this succession of sound doctrine once delivered to the saints in the church, and we also know that those who teach should be ter- first tested. First Timothy three ten. Let those deacons also be first tested. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. And this the same is true with te- with teachers. So the reason, and I close with this, is the reason we have a statement of of what we believe at this church. So that the members can subscribe to it and we could be certain and those members could be certain that the leadership and the teachers of the church believe the same things. If we're going to draw from people to serve within this body, particularly teachers and so forth, future deacons and so forth, then we need to know what you're committed to. And that's why we have that. Then one last, last word from James 3, one, My brethren, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So we're all responsible for that, right? In whatever capacity we teach. And I think we should all take that seriously.